0: Hi, welcome to episode nine of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. This podcast is the audio from a session of an online forum designed to generate conversation around women in the justice system and the need to do things differently. Facilitated by the Living Free Project, this session explored the pathways for many women into the justice system and what evidence-based responses there are, through discussions with two accomplished researchers, one you've heard from from in a previous podcast, Dr Rachel Hale, and the other is Dr Catherine Flynn, who's been working in this space, both as a community-based worker and in the land of academia for um, many decades. Before we get into the recording, I'd like to acknowledge that the Podcast and the webinar was put together on the land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging leaders. So, I will introduce Rachel. So, Dr. Rachel Hale is from the Federation University of Australia and works as a lecturer in criminology and criminal justice in the School of Arts. She's a criminologist and qualified government investigator with experience in both academia and the justice and human service sectors. Her research focuses on women's experience pre-, during and post-incarceration through the lens of desistance theory, using a critical feminist approach to advocate for prevention and decarceration. So thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Lisa. So I'll
1: just share my screen. Okay, hopefully everybody can see that. So thank you all for coming along today. And in the presentation, in my presentation today, I'm going to talk about this process of criminalising trauma, which is the topic of this particular uh, webinar in the series. I'm going to talk about that in relation to women's experiences pre-, during and post-incarceration. So there's two images on the screen here. The one on the right, the aerial view, uh, represents the type of work and the angular approach that I take to women's experiences in the system. So as a criminologist and as a social scientist, my role really is to look at the broader macro picture of what's going on. So the social, the political, the way that those intersect with individual experiences. So connecting the macro then with the micro. And that can be very different from a practitioner perspective. So for those of you who are joining us today who work in and around the criminal justice system, you are probably um, more familiar with, and perhaps the picture on the left resonates more with the image or the angle that that you take in your work, um, where it's often on the ground just dealing with the problems that are immediately in front of you. So the issues that arise in the immediate context, the challenges that arise, and just trying to deal with those. And so when you're on the ground, on the front line, trying to grapple with those immediate issues, oftentimes you don't have the the time or the opportunity to step back and think about the bigger picture. So in my presentation today, I'm hoping that I can provide and create a space and opportunity for you to think about the macro bigger picture uh, and the way that that impacts on the work that you do. And I think that's really important because The social and political context and understanding that and acknowledging that will impact on the way that you do your work, the way that you approach approach the people that you work with and perceive the people that you work with. So in this instance, we're talking about women who come into contact with the criminal justice system. So to dive right into the macro, let's start with criminalising trauma, this concept or process of criminalising trauma. Now, for some of you, the concept of criminalisation and that term will be very familiar, but for those who are not familiar with this term criminalisation, basically it's the process by which behaviours and individuals are transformed into crime and criminals. And transformed is the really integral term there. It's meaning that there are other things that are going on outside and beyond the individual that impact on the way that we perceive that person or typically a group of people. So. This is not a new concept. This is something that has gone on for most all of time. Uh, the best example here would be looking at the criminalisation of ethnic minorities, people of colour, namely Indigenous persons. And whether that's through media messaging, political campaigns, or a legislation which criminalises uh, the behaviours that those groups uh, engage in, we can see that certain groups are constructed as more criminal than other. And that doesn't necessarily align with statistics around offending rates and prevalence. So today, what we're looking at is how is trauma criminalised, namely the trauma that women have experienced. So how does this happen? What does this look like? And why does this happen? And as I said, I'll be talking about that across three stages, pre, during, and post incarceration. So if we think about pre-incarceration and women's pathways into the criminal justice system, first and foremost, and this is likely not a surprise to anybody in the room, that women who come into contact with the criminal justice system have a history of victimization experiences. And that's really important to acknowledge, first of all, because that's going to impact on their subsequent offending pathways and pathways into the system. It's also important to acknowledge this because what that means is that these women have what we call a dual status, meaning that they are both victims and offenders simultaneously. And so that challenges some of our ideas around this clear dichotomy of either you're a victim or you're an offender. And here we have women that are both at the same time. Uh, And, you know, questions about how do you then approach that? And sometimes from a practical perspective, it is quite um, useful to have people sit in these neat categories of victim and offender. And it can be quite challenging uh, when people um, cross over both. So also in relation to women's pathways into the system, we see particularly for young girls, this relationship between being in out-of-home care and then coming into contact with the justice system and related to trauma, we can see that trauma has either led those young girls into out-of-home care or out-of-home care may be traumatising in and of itself. We also see high proportions of illicit drug use and uh, namely drug use to, as a coping mechanism to respond to that complex trauma. We also see um, acquired brain injury being overrepresented in women who are in the criminal justice system. Um, So likely subsequent to um, say head trauma from intimate partner or male violence um, is quite common. And that can have an impact on uh, the individual's behavior. So if we see women engaging in uh, violence, for example, often it can be subsequent to or a result of that ABI. In terms of intergenerational trauma, we must also acknowledge that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, their experiences are very unique um, and set amongst the backdrop of colonisation and both historical and contemporary dispossession, forced removal, separation of children from families, etc. So, that is really important to um, also understand the way that trauma differs in, in terms of uh, race and the, the intersection between gender and, and race. We also see in terms of those different forms of trauma, comorbidity with uh, poor mental health, which again can lead women to break the law and then thus come into contact with the criminal justice system. In thinking about how this process of criminalization happens at this point in time, I think um, in relation to domestic and familial violence events, um, an example of this would be where police might be attending an incident that occurs and we see there's a misidentification of the primary perpetrator there and dual arrests of both the man and the woman in that situation. And so, therefore, women are criminalised often for retaliatory violence or maybe in protecting themselves from a violent male partner and therefore are arrested and taken into custody. Another important thing to consider in terms of criminalisation at this point are also the bail reforms um, that have taken place. So here we see that there were a number of what we would call um, signal crimes, so crimes that elicited great fear in the public and a huge uh, emotional response and outcry from the public and rightly so because they are horrendous crimes. Um, Namely, we're talking about the 2017 Burke Street uh, rampage in Melbourne and we also have the 2014 uh, Link Cafe siege where there's this public outcry and then in response to that, the state utilizes law reform as a political tool. And so we saw changes, um, namely here presumptions against bail that were in response to male violence, but which have had a disproportionately adverse impact on women and have increased the number of women who are refused bail, um, either because they won't apply for bail because they know their chances are very poor um, or because they don't have stable accommodation to meet the eligibility bail and such so then we see these huge increases in the remand population of women um, across australia and in victoria from the statistics are from 2012 to 2017 the number of women entering prison on remand increased by 155 percent which is huge so then you have women that are sitting in prison unsentenced haven't even been to trial yet haven't been found guilty It flies in the face of this presumption of innocence who are then being punished for their inability to be able to meet those bail eligibility uh, criteria, which is directly linked to their trauma histories and the subsequent disadvantage that they experience. So when we say criminalization of trauma, pre-incarceration, these are the types of things that we're talking about. If we move now to look at the prison space and women's experiences during incarceration, in terms of what prisons are trying to do, Ultimately, there are competing goals. So, on one hand, you have punishment, incapacitation, and on the other hand, you have rehabilitation. And those two things sit at opposite ends of a spectrum, and they are competing goals. So, this space is referred to in the literature as a therapunitive space. The therapy being the therapy side, and punitive being the punishment side. So, it raises questions about whether you can actually achieve the therapeutic aims in a system which is ultimately, regardless of, of what programs the therapeutic programs are offered, is still traumatizing for people. And so, in terms of the traumatizing effects of prison, we see that there are very high levels of psychological distress for women who experience imprisonment, and that is particularly uh, important to contextualize in terms of histories of self harm. So, the uh, impact that that's going to have on exacerbating uh, trauma, mental health conditions. We also see women in prison who may be punished for uh, maladapting. So it's interesting in prison that those who adapt well to that, what is quite a unique uh, and strange place, a quasi reality are not punished, but yet those who don't adapt so well are um punished in those spaces and an example of that would be say um, prisoners with an intellectual disability and use a solitary confinement to respond to what are challenging behaviors and so we see that um, histories of trauma impact the way that women behave in prison the way that they experience the prison environment and that criminalization that punishment of that trauma um, continues in that space and is exacerbated in that space. In terms of best practice in the prison system, certainly uh, gender responsivity is considered best practice. But given everything that I've just mentioned, uh, again, coming back to the macro, I think we need to ask the question, are prisons appropriate spaces to respond to trauma? And particularly the complex trauma that we are talking about when we look at women who come into contact with the system. And then of course, post, Incarceration, so women's experiences of release. We see that release compounds previous trauma. So, certainly for the women in my research, they explained how leaving prison without a job, without somewhere stable to stay, uh, returning to unsafe spaces really exacerbated the trauma that was very typical and common for them throughout their life and long standing. So, it's this continuity of, of trauma through that release experience. In terms of a term to capture that experience, I, in my research, use the term reintegration into exclusion, which captures this reality that women are returning to the margins. They are not returning to the mainstream, and they were never part of the mainstream, often to begin with. They experience stigma um, because of their criminal history and record and time in prison. They are isolated, which leads to feelings of loneliness, and all of that um, is traumatising. In and of itself. We also see that loneliness leads to return to violent relationships, therefore further trauma, and also continued substance abuse to cope with release and the experience of imprisonment, which of course then leads to further reoffending, and then we see many women returning to prison. So in terms of desistance, which is the cessation of offending for women, um, if we think about that post-release, what that journey looks like, it's certainly not linear. There are peaks and lulls in that experience. People will often return to offending, but it will sometimes be a less severe form of offending, a less serious form of offending, or less frequent. Um, And so that also um, has implications in terms of how we respond to that offending. Do we criminalise people? for that behaviour and re-incarcerate them. And I think thinking about the way that we manage parole and breaches of orders, but also it has implications for support that is provided. And I think it's important to acknowledge that desistance is not a linear process and experiences of trauma certainly continue to impact re-offending post-incarceration. So I don't know how I'm going for time, Lisa, but just to... um, all right. Okay, just to wrap it up, some final comments. In terms of trauma through my research and many other um, studies that have been done both Australian and internationally, we see that the trauma that women experience is long-standing, it's complex, it's compounding, it's constant, and it's also exacerbated by criminal justice practices. In terms of, you know, what do we do then about this? My key message is that prevention is always better than cure. And I think we need to be thinking beyond just reacting and beyond just responding. And so this is where that macro context comes in. And whilst practitioners play a really important role, we need good people doing good work with women that come into contact with the system. But nonetheless, the broader socio-political context can actually constrain the work of practitioners. So for example, this lack of government investment in welfare if you're working with a woman and you need to find secure housing for her, but there's a lack of housing, appropriate housing stock because of that underinvestment, then that's not only detrimental to the client, it's also detrimental to the practitioner that's trying to do what what to meet the needs of that that woman. So this broader context has a real impact on uh, work within the system. And so I think we need to sustain attention on this macro context Uh, A, because it responsabilises the state and it also challenges what we call penal populism. So it's this law and order politics where the criminal justice system is being manipulated and utilised um, for political gain. So that's really important and that's kind of my job and what I do in my work. um, And I understand that that would be very different for people that are working in the system. Often you don't have the opportunity to engage in that type of advocacy but ultimately that will lead to more transformative change so i'm talking things like diversion community-based alternatives decarceration and at the extreme end abolition more broadly we need um, systemic change so it's not just about changing the system changing the law it's about investment in public health education housing responses to gendered violence and preventing gendered violence uh, addressing sexism racism and all of those big ticket items that are not going to happen overnight. So until that time comes, until we see that transformative systemic change, it is so important uh, for people working in the system to work from a strong, uh, legitimate evidence base. So evidence-based practice is really vital. And by that, uh, we mean trauma-informed practice in responding to the issues that I've just talked about and also gender-responsive practice. And when I think about that, and you might like to think of your own workplaces, for me, that comes down to a culture which facilitates and encourages those practices, capability of staff, do staff know how to work in a trauma-informed and gender-responsive way, and strong leadership to pave the way um, for those practices. So that's it for me, and on the topic of practice, I
0: would like to now hand over to Kathy. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Oh, that was very well-timed. Dr. Kathy Flynn is up next to talk around the direct practice and what works with women in the justice system. So Dr Kathy Flynn works as a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences at Monash University. Her research is centred around the impact of parental incarceration on children and building better responses across the criminal justice system, as well as examining women's experiences exiting from prison in Victoria. Kathy has also undertaken a comprehensive review of what works with women in the justice system with Professor Chris Trotter. I, I would just like to note that the foundations for the Living Free Project and how we intervene with women in the justice system and support women in the justice system came from Cathy's work and Professor Chris Trotter's work. So I'm really wrapped that she could be here today. So thanks, Catherine.
2: Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for those very kind words, and hopefully technology will be my friend. It is today, so that's a good thing. Um, again, thanks, Lisa, for the uh, the lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, probably good to out myself as an old school social worker. So I do work in academia now and I've been there for, it seems like quite a long time, but I am a social worker by trade. And all of my practice and all of my research have been very connected in some ways, either to youth justice or to the adult correctional system. Um, thank you, too, to Rachel for really setting, setting the scene and really kind of presenting that big picture and the big picture challenges that we all have to work with. And I uh, totally, totally agree. Prevention is absolutely better than cure. However, what I'm going to do today is focus much more on the micro and if you think back to Rachel's very initial kind of images, my focus is pretty much on the messy undergrowth and about how you can use some of those ideas that Rachel presented and I'm going to talk a little bit more about in your day-to-day practice and to make the experience of working with women um, a better one for those women and in fact better for yourself and so that you are not in fact exacerbating the problems that come about because of justice intervention Should also say, I am not an expert on trauma. I know a bit about evidence and a bit about practice. And so I'm going to draw um, from both of those things. What we do know from the evidence is about the importance of relationships. And what I'm going to do today is to focus on one element of relationships. And that really is what women are likely bringing to the work with you and really that focus on trauma. So some of what I'm going to talk about we'll skip over it well we'll address a little bit of what um, rachel talked about but i'm not going to spend too much time on that but what i want to do is to start with with you now i'm not going to ask anybody to share their thoughts or their reflections but i just wanted people to take a couple of minutes to reflect on your own sort of starting point about what is your experience of working with women do you actually work with women are they your primary client group And what have been your observations and reflections on working with women? And particularly, how do you find them in relation to working with men? And I'm kind of asking people to do that because we know that uh, criminal justice is really described as quite a masculinised sector. We know that women as service users are typically the minority. And it's really common for work with women or for women to kind of enter the system preceded by this range of stereotypes Um, And I'm sure I'm not saying anything surprising when I say women are often, women service users are often described as manipulative or difficult or needy or time consuming. And I think it's really important in this work that we do take a moment to ground ourselves and to consider what we as workers might be bringing to these interactions. So I'm just going to leave people with that and move on now to talking a little bit about what we know about women in the criminal justice system and again Rachel's talked about some of these issues and I guess what I'm going to present in this slide and the next one is a little bit about I guess some facts and figures but to focus a bit more on well what do those facts and figures what might they mean in terms of the work that you do so we know that women are different to men we know that women offend less often we know that in the community corrections space, women make up maybe around 17 or 18% of the client group and in prisons even less at about 7%. We know that women offend differently. And again, Rachel talked a little bit about this, but we know that even though over the last few years, women committing assaults, the numbers of those women have increased. um, But by and large, we know that the most serious offences tend to be drug related. And again, Rachel talked a little bit about that. Um, whereas for men, you know, the primary, most uh, serious offences tend to be assaults and sexual assaults. We also know that for most women in prison, they're there for non violent crimes and things like breaches of bail or breaches of things like parole. And Rachel certainly talked about that before in terms of the massive increase of women on remand. We know that women stop or start and stop offending differently to men. And really importantly, we know that women's histories and pathways to offending are different. We know that trauma is central to women's offending. So what do we know about that really? And I guess a lot of what we know is based on women in prison, um, but I actually think the principles for that hold true for women more generally. I haven't seen any evidence that would say what we know about that group is, is different to the group more generally. And I guess it's important to say, I guess I was, what I was going to say about this is that I'm sure that I don't know who you all are who've attended today, um, but I guess that some of you will know some of this, some of you will know a lot of this. So I'm going to cover it reasonably briefly and really focus again on what it means in day-to-day practice. I guess it's important for me to say that what we see evident in the people in front of us, so in terms of the women that we're working with, is absolutely the end result of a series of intersecting and compounding events that begin begin in early childhood now i am quite sure that i'm preaching to the converted when i when i say that and and i say that that's definitely not an excuse but it's absolutely an explanation and i think understanding these things is helpful to us in our practice it helps to highlight the issues we need to be aware of and then some ways of responding to that so we know that somewhere in the region of two thirds of women have experienced childhood sexual assault and if we think about the impact of that on people in terms of just a basic sense of their own personal boundaries um, and I guess those of you who work in practice will say well you know you can see opposite ends of the spectrum some women having incredibly tight boundaries and inability to trust people and inability to work with people Um, and other women who have no boundaries at all and place themselves or are placed in very unsafe situations. We know that childhood sexual assault has really clear links to things like mental health, which leads to potentially to things like self-medication and alcohol and drug use. So we can see the connection then into offending pretty clearly. We know again that around two thirds of women have been exposed to family violence, either um, as children or in adulthood. And again, if we think about what does that mean, it has such a wide-ranging impact on women in terms of things like physical health. And I know Rachel made this point earlier, but the recent Australian Australian Institute of Health and Welfare research certainly highlighted um, the potential impact of, of acquired brain injuries. And I think it was something like one in three women talked about injuries that led to a loss of consciousness. I don't think we know enough about that at the moment. I think that's certainly a really growing area. It's probably something we all work with or more have struggled with, but haven't quite got a framework for understanding. So I think that's something to kind of be really aware of. We also know that family violence has an impact on people's emotional and mental health, but also on really practical things like financial security and housing. And we do know that for a lot of women, offending is very related to poverty. We know. That people's family circumstances um, have, uh, have an impact and it's really common for women in prison to have had aside from things like sexual abuse, um, other traumas and adverse childhood experiences, um, being removed from home um, sometimes um, as part of an intergenerational pattern, being in out-of-home care, deaths of family members are really common as well. We know that women often enter into offending and into criminal behaviour as a result of relationships that are in. Often those things are related to drug use, can lead to things like sex work and often occur in the context of family violence. I recall working with a woman once who ended up doing quite a long stint in prison for an armed robbery and the choice was to do the armed robbery and face the consequences or the potential consequences of that or face her husband who would beat her if she didn't provide the money for the drugs that he wanted. So women are often in completely untenable positions. Again we know that drug use is something that's quite common in this group of women and two-thirds, I feel like I say the word two-thirds quite often um, and, and it is a really common, it's a recurring kind of figure which is really worrying About two thirds of women have experienced sexual abuse, family violence, drug use, and mental health problems. So what we're talking about then is really the majority of women that we all work with, we all see, have more than one problem, most likely. And they bring that with them to every interaction. Mental health particularly, I think, is a a really big concern. Again, we know that that the majority of women in prison have mental health problems much higher than women in the community, but also much higher than men in the prison system. Um, so that's, a, again, something that we all need to grapple with. And all of these things are absolutely interconnected. So we can see that early childhood trauma can lead to a range of other problems which, of which the end result may be offending. But we also know that trauma can have an absolute impact on women's behavior and therefore their capacity to engage in treatment with you leads to problems and then leads to problems in dealing with the problems. So again that's kind of a compounding issue and so we know that trauma can have an impact on um, people's self-awareness, their capacity to engage in treatment, how they see themselves, how they feel about themselves, how they manage those feelings, how they relate to other people. So what I wanted to do is just to present a bit of a hypothetical to think about how some of those things play out and what we might be able to do about that. So again, just a bit of a made up, but probably pretty realistic case. 34 year old Sheree subject to a community based supervision for a drug related offence. Sole parent of three children aged under 10. Sheree has a history of drug addiction and has been diagnosed in recent years with bipolar she spent some of her childhood in out-of-home care, having experienced physical and sexual abuse at home. And the things I wanted to think about are, does her history matter in your work? And or why does it matter? And if you think it matters, what might be the likely effects on your work? And then to think about, well, what are the things that might re-traumatise women? And Rachel spoke, spoke before about, well, sometimes our practices and the systems we're in can in fact exacerbate those problems. And therefore make your work more difficult and what can you do about that you will probably not be surprised if I say I definitely think it's important and I think it's important because it will undoubtedly influence how Sheree engages in work and how she interacts with you even if you're not aware of it even if she's not aware of it you will get that delivered to you and I remember learning a really You know, you give those kind of soundbite lessons that stay with you for years. I was at a conference many years ago now, and somebody was talking about. It was a group psychotherapy conference. Really long story, which I will not bore you with. But um, the person gave this analogy of of where you receive those letters in the post. They come to your home, but they're delivered. You know, they're addressed to you know, dear householder, dear occupant. They are not meant for you, but you get them anyway, and it was a really useful way of of thinking about how people can project um, their previous experiences onto you. So you're going to get this stuff, whether you're aware of it or not. And I tend to think if you have no framework for understanding people's behaviour, you can, I guess, not only make a series of assumptions about that behaviour, but it can also be incredibly frustrating. So I, I think thinking about how trauma has an influence on people's behaviour can actually be really helpful and empowering in your work. So if you think about what might play out for Sheree, for the sorts of things you might see might be that she might actually be quite difficult to engage. And if we go back to thinking about those issues around, um, around boundaries and trust, she might be quite distracted, she might be quite hopeless, she might miss appointments. And I guess everybody kind of, everybody, oh yeah, people miss appointments all the time. I think it's part of social work. We should teach people how to deal with missed appointments. There is some suggestion though, um, more recently, that, that victimisation and trauma has quite a physical impact beyond what we know about people's self-perception and around risk-taking, but has it, can have quite a physical impact on things like people's consciousness and things therefore like forgetting appointments. You might also find that Cherie um, can be quite inappropriate in relation to her boundaries. You might find that she's incredibly distant or the opposite of that being far too close and demanding and wanting to know a lot of things about you or you might get really lucky and, and you get the combination of both. You're probably also going to find that Cherie in reality actually has a range of other responsibilities, other appointments, other parts of her life, responsibilities to her children, school and the like. And if you think about in your role in working with her, the sorts of things that are likely to exacerbate those problems um, and to make them worse will be things like changes in staffing, reallocation of things like caseworkers. It always surprises me and it shouldn't how often um, in statutory organisations that happens really regularly Um, without any preparation for people, and with no thought to what the implications of that might be. You might find that practices like needing to do observed urine screens will create additional problems. You might find that something like a busy office environment where there's no privacy that's noisy, that's unpredictable, will exacerbate these problems. And not having any sense of autonomy will exacerbate these problems. And all of these things act to, I guess, replicate what Cherie is is kind of bringing to you from her life history um, and those experiences of powerlessness okay so that feels like a really heavy message like you know someone comes they bring all this stuff they dump it on you and now you're doing things that may in fact make it worse there are things that you can do and I say this because it is very micro and and very mindful of the limited resources that we all work within. And I'm going to imagine also that people do some of these things, many of these things. But if that's the case, then I would say consider this as a bit of a reminder that the things that you're doing um, are in fact good things. I think things like Consistency of staffing is really important. If you need to reallocate somebody like Cherie or any of your clients, in fact, this shouldn't just be a, oh, is somebody traumatized, let's do this. I think there are good universal practices. If you're needing to reallocate staff, think about how you do that in a planned way. Um, When you take leave, because we all need to take leave, how can you reallocate your caseload and the women that you're working with to a consistent person over time? so that those relationships are already in place. Think really practically too. I know it's a slight sidestep, but being really practically aware that Sheree will have other responsibilities and and the women that you work with will have other responsibilities. Asking about those, not assuming that, that you are central to her life. Do you have a system in place that reminds people about appointments? I know some systems are really kind of resistant to that, which is, you need to be responsible, you need to turn up. And I think, I don't know any of us, I know me, I get reminders on every single appointment that I have for everything. And I've become incredibly reliant on those things. And I think, let's assume that if you put into place that kind of universal practice, it will address some of the potential problems about missed appointments or missing appointments. That doesn't, Um, fix the problem of lack of access to something like transport but to also think about a really practical barrier of does somebody need transport do you actually need to meet them in an office environment is there another is there another environment that you can also meet them in I think being really clear about boundaries is really important as well and being consistent with those boundaries now that doesn't mean rigid and tight and tightly in here it just means consistent. Um, The thing I do know is that it's absolutely exhausting to be the, the person who's constantly putting boundaries into place, and you may not see the benefit of that work. Somebody else might see the benefit of that work, but that consistent boundary setting is a really important part of building safety and trust for women. The other things I think that are important are about how can you create as much choice in the intervention as possible. Now, if you're thinking Sheree is an involuntary client, absolutely, but within those boundaries, there are still many things that we can allow people to have choice about. Might be about the environment, it might be about the time, um, it might be something really as basic as, what do you want to talk about? What are the important things for you in your life? Even something like if Sheree has to have urine screens, how do you do that in a way that has is mindful of her need for safety, is mindful of you know transparency and trust and collaboration. How do you explain it? How do you allow her to ask questions about it? How do you give her as much choice as possible? So I think all of these things are about thinking through how you can be mindful that women bring a sense of powerlessness with them very often um, and bring challenges in boundaries and challenges with relationships. And how can you put into place, I guess, a series of universal approaches to practice that will help you to work well with all of your clients. So I've really just focused today on thinking about trauma and being evidence-informed, but it's a small part of, I guess, a whole package about um, how we can work well with women, Um, thinking holistically, working collaboratively, working with people's strengths, ensuring connections to other services, knowing that people have to have their basic needs met. And being mindful that what you do as a worker makes a difference. And just to kind of say that, I, th- you know, I think the evidence is pretty is pretty clear that I'm working with women that, you know, a relational approach that's strengths-based and collaborative are the things that will help you work well. So that is it from me and just some resources and references um, that are all freely available, um, which might be useful. And I know somebody was asking about sharing slides and that is a good idea thank you
0: excellent thanks so much for that Kathy it's really good to have that macro and then micro view and I know we've got participants here from across legal community health justice Um, so a couple of comments I picked up whilst I was looking at the chat really looked at the housing. Um, I know, Belinda, you, you mentioned that housing issues cause them to return to violent relationships. And I think that that's, um, if you wanted to comment any further on that, Belinda, but I think um, that is an absolute part of the cycle, is that housing instability. Belinda, are you still on?
3: Yes, I yes. yeah. um, um, yes, I, I find that the, the women that we work with often return to those violent
0: relationships, um, their partners, because they've got no other housing options. Um, so that's very common. Mm. And, and I think that we've seen definitely in practice is that there is uh, women that don't get bail or can't get bail because of housing and yes. housing instability as well. So they so.
3: choose, yeah. They choose to get released um, and go back to that environment. Well not so much choice because it's not really their choice, they've really got no other options.
0: Mm, Absolutely and I guess that's where that broader systemic advocacy comes into it for you know the housing sector and safe and secure housing as well.
3: Absolutely, yes.
0: Mm. And Rachel, I'm, um, from White Lion, also commented in relation to getting training for all of the practitioners around trauma. I'm really interested, and this is a chat I, I think I would love to have, uh, about there's been a broad-brushed approach to trauma-informed service delivery. So do you think that that hasn't happened, Rachel, or is it a different thing that we need? I just think the importance of it. Um, My programme comes from a trauma-informed practice and we look at the the strengths of a person, we come from a strengths-based approach and we can just look at things so holistically and broadly and I know that even just sometimes speaking with other workers who the words thrown out there are like trauma-informed practice and strengths-based approach but I don't feel as though the appropriate training is provided across
1: the entire sector. I do just think it's kind of a buzzword that people are aware of and have an understanding of
0: but without the actual training to follow um and i know that just coming from an advocacy point of view when i do look at trauma coming from a trauma informed lens it does open the eyes of other workers as well um so yeah I just big advocate of trauma informed practice
2: <laughs> can i add something just in response to that lisa i really agree rachel and i think that i don't know it's something i think that's quite evident i don't know I'll just speak from a social work perspective. There are often big motherhood statements, what I would call motherhood statements, you know, we're gonna do strengths or we're gonna do this. And in fact, what we need to do is to unpack those and go, what does that actually look like on a day-to-day basis? What can I practically do? Can I, and so I, what I kind of was trying to do a little bit today was to talk about what might that look like? Can I give somebody choice about meeting in an office or meeting somewhere else? Or can I do this or can I do that? But yeah, just putting a label on something is not helpful unless you actually help people think through the, the practical application of it. I think you're really, really on to something.
0: And I, I think um, in addition to the, the training, absolutely, gender, around gender responsiveness as well, you know, that goes hand in hand. And I think um, one of the things that I have, it was like, you know, the light bulb moments that you have when you go, that's actually it and you know today's topic is around criminalizing trauma and there must be a better way our service system can support women so they don't fall through the gaps and one of the things that became quite apparent in in the work that we've been doing in the living free project is there actually isn't any models of care evidence-based models of care in the mental health sector to respond to complex trauma so I'm, i'm interested in anyone's experience or thoughts and comments around that
2: well I've got some thoughts about it but thoughts about many things I guess one of the difficulties I think is that in the criminal justice space there's such a focus on you know risk needs and responsivity which um, one of the one of the links I put at the end of my slides was to a really good gendered critique of that Um, which I think is really important. And again, Chris Trotter, who I've worked quite closely with, has done some work in that space too, to say that all of those things, I have some problems with that model, full stop. But where you don't actually address people's needs as they present, as they see them, you're not actually going to get anywhere anyway. But I I think it's the competing ideology in the bigger system that, makes it difficult to establish a different framework i guess is what i'm trying to say Mm.
1: and if i could just quickly comment on risk need responsivity um, because that is the dominant approach um, particularly in relation to um, correctional uh, offender management i think there the literature indicates that there is this conflating of need with risk so a lot of the issues that we've been talking about which stem from trauma when you do that assessment, people that are very high need then come out as very high risk. And then that high risk rating has an impact on uh, the prison that that person is uh, housed in, the the treatment that they receive there in terms of the level of security, the level of of surveillance. So I think there's a whole range of issues around um, some of the models that we're using where there's a claim that they are evidence-based, but in fact, when you look at the literature, it is actually, um, there's conflict within the literature and there's querying. Of the um, effect that those models have on lowering recidivism rates. So the evidence base isn't strong enough really to back up those approaches. Um, and we do see for women then they are overrepresented in high risk categories because they are high need. Another issue I just really quickly want to talk about, and this is the micro macro as well, is that a lot of the models that um, are applied and used are very individual focused, very much centered on the individual person and responsabilizing them as the primary agent for change without recognising this broader context, which constrains the choices and agency that that individual has. So I think it's really important in applying those models to be mindful of the intersection between the individual
0: and then the macro broader social context. Absolutely, and um, Posey, I noticed a comment there from you in the chat um, that a lot of these models are skewed towards male offender needs, and that is, I think, one of the really underpinning thing in the justice um, and legal settings is that a lot of this, the research, a lot of the evidence is driven by male offenders, and because they're the majority population, so there's a big push um, to really shine a light on women in the justice system because they are uniquely different and have uniquely different needs in terms of response. Um, I'm, I'm, I know that there's a number of people here, uh, legal practitioners, so legal reps, and um, that have had experience in the court system with women. And I, I'm just interested to know if there's any practice direction or anything in their practice around Responding to women, Robbie. I might be Robbie. Re, Robbie's a barrister, so I don't know if you've got any comments there. No. Is there any? Yes. <laughs> Do you need to? Can Can you unmute? I'll unmute you. Unmute. Unmute. Oh, there we go. Okay.
3: Yes. Yeah. Um. What I'm finding really, really difficult, Lisa, and everybody, is how female client, cli- my female clients, when they offend on in a male way, if I could put it that way, are treated with such venom and anger. They're treated almost worse than males are. E.g., a female who comm- that's it. what Rachel says, WDV, yeah. A female who um, commi- offends against a partner, particularly a female partner, you know, life imprisoned prison isn't enough type of thing. It's just so, so strong that um, it leaves me in despair. And the, the other side of it that I was thinking about, especially when Catherine did her um case study, is that we are constantly band-aiding these women when they're coming out. Um, they are they are left in jail because they have no housing and they're poor and they're drug addicted. That's basically it. Unless by some miracle they live in your area, Lisa, and I can get them out. The rest of them are Dame Flores Frost. Um, they come out. When they finally come out, they... Probably come out on a CCO, and it's such a blunt instrument again. Um, it They're rated as high risk of reoffending, even I don't know quite know how the formula comes about, but it's it's a damning formula. Um, they're put on a CCO. Some I've got one woman. Um, I think she's been given a fine now three and a half thousand dollars. She's homeless. She's in some sort of drug rehab centre, she's never going to pay that for the rest of her life. Um, I'd struggle to pay it. And that was because she assaulted her male partner, i.e. she hit him on the face. Um, No, there's no, no matter, it's the reverse of male justice. I mean, I can't say you want to see what he's done to her in the past because you're never allowed to say that about females when your client's a man. You can never victim blame, but somehow what you want to say is that women are in a worse position because quite often violence to a partner is a result of years of being hit and abused um, or just being abused generally. They come out, they put on a CCO, but they've also got DHS involved with the kids. They're trying to attend their drug counselling, Drug counselling, wonderful as it is, is kind of like the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. They're taking drugs for the exact reason the speakers have said, because they are so deeply traumatised. And you cannot, I mean, I don't know, like just before this, I've been constantly emailing with a drug counsellor to say, you know, my client's got a lot more trauma than drugs. Um, We have to, I need a proper therapist to, not that drug counselors aren't, but you know, I need a psychotherapist to address what's way, way, way below the drug use. Then she'll stop using as much. But you just don't get it. And don't even mention the mental health
0: system, please, Lisa. <laughs> And I think, oh thanks, much. Robbie. And and I I think that there are a, a great deal, and, and I'm conscious of time and people, you know, no doubt have their calendars full. And today we just really wanted to start by highlighting the background of women in the justice system. Um, there is a lot going on. The Federation of Community Legal Centres has Smart Justice for Women that's looking at um, both the justice system reform as well as the service system reform. So where is it that the real advocacy efforts need to put in um, and where do they need to target? So I think that it's uh, definitely around um, that changing the narrative, um, the stigma that comes down with women in the justice system. Um, But whilst that is a longer term goal, it's if we can influence um, how one practitioner that has a connection with a woman might change or consider how that might be different from their, for them and how trauma actually underpins their presentation in the justice system. I think that, you know, we have a responsibility as a collective to start changing that narrative so on that note it is bang on three o'clock i um have everybody's email so i am more than happy to share the slides and also we've got uh, the living free project has a very amateur podcast um that will trans. um we'll put this recording into as well so i'll pop that link in there and um future sessions feel free to make contact via return email and um Uh, you know anything that you want to hear about we we'd love to get everybody together and keep going on this journey as a collective across different sectors so thank you everyone thanks rachel and Catherine. thank Thank you. you thanks everyone